Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Ian Miller, lecturer in medical history at Ulster University and researcher on the Epidemic Belfast projects. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experiences of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's episode, um, we have Hannah Brown, a master's student at Ulster University, and we also have two guests as well, Jim Bailey Crowey, uh, and the theme of today is the, the polio uh, of the 1950s, ongoing impacts uh, upon those who survived it. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So Hannah, uh, what is polio and when did it become a problem in Northern Ireland? Uh, the polio virus causes poliomyelitis or polio. Polio is primarily spread fecally, orally, and is highly contagious, often ingested through contaminated food or water. Polio induces gastroenteritis, respiratory illness, or paralysis. Since 1913, polio has been present in Northern Ireland, with only a few sporadic cases between 1914 to 1946. The first cases of polio in Belfast were recorded in 1923. A surge in outbreaks began in Northern Ireland in 1947, where 208 became infected, with 30 patients unfortunately dying. In 1950, 272 were infected with polio, and in 1953, 290 caught polio. Despite a vaccine in 1957, 297 were infected, with nine passing away. These figures are only the cases notified to statutory bodies and do not represent the full extent of polio in Northern Ireland. Geminetti contracted polio during the 1957 outbreak with likely type 1 polio. In this outbreak, there were 162 cases in Belfast. Paralysis occurred in 144 of these cases. So was polio an entirely new disease? Uh, no. Historian Edward Sass contends polio predates the recording of history. British physician Michael Underwood in 1789 is hailed as the first to give a clinical description of polio as a debility of the lower extremities in children. The German doctor Jacob von Heine in 1840, identified infantile spinal paralysis as a form of paralysis. The pathology was unknown until 1870, when French doctors Jean-Martin Chacot and Alex Joffrey identified the, the wasting of anterior horns in the spinal cord gray matter. Uh, poliomyelitis comes from the Greek words for polio for gray and mylos for spinal cord. The first report of polio in an epidemic proportion was in 1891 by the Swedish doctor Oskar Meden following uh, an outbreak in Stockholm. The improvement of sanitation measures in the 20th century had had catastrophic consequences regarding childhood immunity to polio. While the Industrial Revolution ushered in better sanitation and improved public health, the increase in hygiene diminished the likelihood of infancy exposure to the virus, thus, thus creating a hotbed for polio to thrive. In the 1950s, epidemics of polio became common. Between 1940 and 1950, 
there was widespread panic relating to polio. It's really interesting because in an earlier episode, we looked at the therapeutic revolution of the early 20th century, uh, and we saw many epidemic diseases retreating in the early 20th century. So it's, it's interesting that polio seems to be coming in after, uh, and when doctors are, were much more confident about being able to cure people. Uh, can, you, can you tell us then how a bit more about how Northern Irish people experienced polio in the 19th and beyond? The Ulster Medical Journal in 1953 stated that the most feared complication of polio was respiratory paralysis and that legs were more commonly to become paralyzed than arms. Moreover, the Ulster Medical Journal contemplated the prevention of polio, fearing an outbreak like Denmark. Belfast did not have the hospital facilities to cope. In response to insights by Danish physicians, treatment centers for polio were created in the United Kingdom. There is no cure for polio, only supportive care such as plaster casts on limbs, splints, or artificial respirators known as iron lung. The iron lung was a cylinder device that enclosed the body and stimulated breathing. Physical therapy was also deployed, including exercise in a warm pool, heat and light massage to manage pain. Surgery was sometimes suggested. The Belfast Telegraph in 1957 revealed that Belfast more swimming baths, those that those who suffered polio believed in swimming to recovery. Swimming was cited as the best exercise to strengthen limbs. The activity was set up by the Northern Ireland branch of the Infantile Paralysis Fellowship. At the time, the membership of the group exceeded 300. The group intended to purchase a hall for a weekly club for support as, quote, a psych a physiotherapist cannot help him. Uh, polio isn't much of a problem nowadays. Um, so presumably at some point uh, a vaccine was developed and, and introduced. That, that worked quite well. Yes, there was. Um, firstly, a Polish doctor, Hilary Koprowski, was the first to create a potential polio vaccine in 1948. Koprowski received a letter from the microbiology department led by Dr. G.W.A. Dick at Queen's University Belfast to trial a potential vaccine in Northern Ireland. Dick carried out clinical trials, including on colleagues, medical students, and family members. Polio was not present in the participants, yet when the virus was extracted from the stool of vaccinated children and given to monkeys, it caused paralysis. Dick recommended that the trials be halted. Koprowski's findings were eclipsed by the success of Jonas Stock and Albert Sabin, in 1952, Jonas Stock of the University of Pittsburgh began experimental trials on children. He reported his findings to the Committee on Immunization in 1953. By 1954, a large-scale trial on 1.8 million American children was in motion. Uh, in 1955, the vaccine was deemed safe. Manufacturing commenced in the United States. However, the Cutter Laboratories in California accidentally produced vaccines with, contaminated with polio. The accident caused 40,000 new cases of polio and 10 deaths. Sabin developed an oral vaccine from a live polio virus. Sabin's oral vaccine halted the epidemic spread of polio and was favoured from 1961. In an earlier episode, we looked at the history of anti-vaccinations and particularly in the Victorian period. So I guess I wondered, and given how horrific polio could be, what 
at the time were, were the public's attitudes towards vaccination and how much enthusiasm was there? Um, in 1957, uh, the first 100 children from Belfast received the polio vaccine, the same vaccine taken by Prince Charles and Princess Anne. In 1957, the medical officer of health report details that the vaccines received an apathetic reception. In Belfast, parents questioned its safety. Throughout 1958, vaccines continued without incident, leading to an increase in demand by 1959. In 1960, there were three cases of polio in Belfast. The re-emergence of cases led to a rise in demand in Belfast for the vaccine. In 1963, it was the first time in 20 years where no incidences of polio due to the success of the oral vaccine. The Belfast Telegraph stated in, that in 1977, only 60% of children were vaccinated. An anonymous doctor uh, stated that it was partly down to complacency and confusion with the whooping cough vaccine. Uh, in pop culture, Ian Jury, the rock star in uh, 1979, showed the ravages of polio on his body in the hit music video, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. And he was probably the most um, vocal polio sufferer. Um, and then in 1982, polio returned to Belfast. A two-year-old boy became infected. Polio had not been detected in the city for five years, and this was dubbed the new polio shock. Officials once again urged parents in Belfast to vaccinate their children. In response to the outbreak, surplus vaccinations were flown in from London. Belfast undertook a citywide vaccination programme. The Irish press in 1982 detailed that even with the wonders of modern medicine, polio continues to pose a threat. The last case of uh, natural polio in the United Kingdom was in 1984. In 1988, the Global Eradication Initiative sought to increase vaccine availability and establish campaigns to promote the vaccine. Thank you. That was all fascinating material. I, I guess I'd like to hand over to our two guests now. And Hannah, I understand you have quite a good, good few questions you'd like to ask them. Hi. So today I'm joined by uh, Jim Bailey, Bailey and Eddie McCrory, both uh, committee members of Northern Ireland Polio Fellowship. So uh, Jim, I will direct this question at you first. Uh, due to contracting polio as a baby, can you explain your parents' experience uh, surrounding you, the time of your diagnosis and your parents' um, opinion of the vaccine as it was out in 1957? Well, as um, I was eight months when I took the polio, so I have absolutely no recollections of it. My earliest recollection is just before I started high school. I remember being on a caliper on my left leg, out in both legs for a while. Um, but as far as the vaccine went, my parents were all in favour of it. I think probably mostly because they've seen exactly what polio could do to your body. Completely ravaged. Um, Eddie, I'm wondering how, what was your parents' kind of um, perception of the vaccine? Well, my mother told me that I was actually due to get my vaccine in just before I started school in September. Apparently she had arranged it, but unfortunately I took polio on around about the 16th of July just after my uh, fifth birthday. So the, vaccine, the, the polio overtook the vaccine because there were very few actual doses available at that time. I mean, as you said, there was only 100 people uh, vaccinated in 1957. So there wasn't actually the thousands of 
doses that they were actually needed. But my, my parents would have been uh, very much in favour of it. Now, unlike Jim, I have some memories of, of it because I was five and just about to start school. And uh, I can remember clearly becoming ill on the, the uh, it was a very hot summer and I was out playing in the street and uh, I became unwell and my, uh, the lady beside my mother came over and said, you're wee boys sitting out there. And I was a holy turner. I never sat down. I was, a, I was always out and about and uh, I just couldn't get anything done. So my mother sent for the doctor the next day. And I think that's what annoyed my mother about the doctor was that the doctor said I had the flu. Now that's what polio seems like, but because of the epidemic, maybe he should have known but then a second day she sent for him but what happened was my grandmother was living with us at the time she had multiple cirrhosis and it was the district nurse who visited her said mrs mccrory there's something a lot more wrong with your son than the flu if i was you i would phone the bureau doctor so uh the bureau doctor was sent for and uh, he immediately sent for an ambulance and i was rushed into hospital and i was there for a year but uh and at that time, just a, a point, I don't you mentioned the Belfast Telegraph a couple of times. What the talk about now about people, you know, you see every night in the television, there were two, 277 cases of COVID. And now what used to happen in Northern Ireland was people didn't have phones then. And this is my mother told me was whenever I went into hospital, I was given a number. And that number was published in the Belfast Telegraph every night. So that my aunts and uncles from the country who couldn't obviously, they weren't allowed to visit. And what it was, it went from a number from one to five. One was critical, very ill, did it, and, and then you could see how they moved up and down. The, so that's how your family kept in touch. Because I used to wonder how my aunt used to, we looked at the Belfast Telegraph every night to see how you were, but they didn't have, it wasn't my name. It was the number that was in. So I went to be number 7829. And then that's what, and this was in the Belfast Telegraph every night. So that's really, really interesting. Um, so uh, what was your experience, uh, Jim, with um, post-polio syndrome disability? And what has your experience with medical professionals in your adult life been like in relation to post-polio syndrome? Well, um, well polio in my teens started to really affect my back uh, in the 20s. So much so that doctors suggested a leg lengthening operation. That was because I was getting scoliosis of the spine. So they tried a leg lengthening operation. Unfortunately, that didn't go too well. Um, I ended up with that, a lot of surgery and ended up with an amputation of the poliolum, which was probably one of the easier operations I got at that time. Um, with, um, with lately now, I'm having a lot of trouble with my back. I need to, I need both hips replaced because of the polio. The, the left hip can't be replaced. I'm so basically stuck with that. Um, and just you have your pains everywhere. My two shoulders, I'm full of arthritis and all that. I've been on crutches for 20 odd years. So things ain't getting much better. That sounds really, really, really hard. Um, uh Eddie, how about yourself? What's kind of your been experience with medical professionals and uh, post-polio um, syndrome disability? Well, when I was discharged from hospital after a year, I had calipers in both legs and a brace, a full-length brace on my back. 
And every night I had to sleep in a cast of myself. I used to lie in this cast and my mother and father put bandages around me like a mummy so that you couldn't move. And that, I wore that for about a year or so. And after, I mean, and whenever I was discharged from hospital, they had advised that I should go to a special school. And my mother immediately said no, that there would be no way, that I lived quite close to the primary school and she would bring me around to the primary school, which worked out all right. And I never went to a special school. But after about a year, two years, I managed to get rid of the calipers and the brace. And I attended the hospital every three or four months until I was about 10. And then they sort of said, well, there's really nothing else can happen. But like Jim, uh, polio has a, a high way of giving you a double whammy. With Jim's case, it was leg lengthening. Now, when I was started secondary school at age 11, I had my two wasted legs, but I was completely straight. But I could not cope with adolescent growth. And no one had said that there was anything to do. So what happened was I bent in two and I have what they call a severe lumbar and skeletal scoliosis, uh, which came not at polio, but at age 12 or 13. Uh, so then I got back into the system again and uh, the, the doctors then uh, decided that I needed to be stretched so I had, I went into it. The only thing you could describe it as is, the, you know, getting on the rack. You, you put plaster cast around your shoulder and onto your shoulder and around your hips and lay you on a rack and they put uh, cords here and down there and then they just turned them until you couldn't stick it any longer and then they put plaster around the middle to hold it straight and you were like that for three weeks and then they brought you back again and did it all over again and stretched you a bit more. It sounds archaic, but this is the way it was done. And then when they got as far as they could, uh, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, what happened was then uh, I was watching the surgeon and he would he, these x-rays of me getting sort of slightly straighter and straighter until what they thought, this is as straight as we can get him. And I could see him drawing all these little things on the x-rays. And I said, what's that for? And by this stage, like I was 15 and I had a sort of a mind of my own. And he said that, uh, Oh, this is for when you go to Edinburgh. And I said, what? He says, uh, you have to go to Edinburgh to have uh, rods put into your spine, on your back. And uh, I said, well, what's that? And he said, it's to keep you straight. And I said, well, how long will it be in Edinburgh for? He says, oh, nine or 12 months. And I thought, oh, God, because my parents couldn't afford to go over and see me other than maybe once every couple of months. And I, so my mother came up that night to hospital and I said, I'm bloody sure I'm not going to have, I'm not going to Edinburgh. So I wouldn't have the operation. Looking back, maybe I should have had it. Because what happened then was I went into a, what they call a Milwaukee brace, which was up to the top of your neck. And that held me in place until I was about 17 or 18. And then it came off and a lower brace went on. Uh, but I then started to bend again, which was because I hadn't got the, the rods in. And then in 1972, I had an operation on my leg for polio and the doctor suggested this operation again, by which stage they could do it in Belfast. And I saw, right, uh, well, the, 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 they had, when I was in in 72, they had just had the first operation was done in Belfast. Now, not the person didn't have polio, but he had the, the uh, scoliosis. And uh, he was in actually in the next bed to me. 
and it was I've seen him and it was uh, it was horrendous. He was in hospital and he would hit all these wires and tubes and everything. And I thought, holy God. And when I went to the doctor, he says, you would need an operation like that. And I said, like this fella had. And he said, oh, yes, but the only difference in him is his scoliosis was only a lumbar scoliosis. So he said, we just had to go through his stomach. But he said, you have a full skill. Yours is from the top to the bottom of your spine. So we'd have to go through the stomach, do it at the bottom, give you sort of a week to recover, and then operate through the top of your back to do the top bit. And it was, so I, I said, no. And then I, had a, I was offered it again when I was 40. And my wife was expecting our third child. And I just said, no. So I've lived with it. But as Jim says, you go on now, you get tired and sorer and one thing and another. But, you know, it, 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 the medical profession has been good to me. But other ways, you know, like if they'd never taken the brace off me when I was eight, would I have got this? I don't know. But they didn't know. It was just wasn't known. I mean, I'm not blaming anybody. You know, weren't to know this was going to happen. But so it has been a, quite a journey. <laughs> that's probably too long for you. No, Anna. that's uh, so interesting, and thank you for sharing that. Um, you were saying about school and how your mum didn't want you to go mm -hmm. to like a special school. So I'm just kind of thinking, um, it kind of what was your experience in the workplace? And then in school with having polio, did they give you any special treatment? Was there kind of special access or did they do anything specifically for you to help you? Well, primary school was no bother because in primary school, you, you, you stay in the same class. So in fact, that wasn't an issue uh, really very much. When I went to secondary school, and what happened there was, now, it wouldn't happen now, there would be ructions about, you know, uh, you know, for you know, equal opportunities and all. Well, I remember the first end secondary school when we went up and were given out the, the, the subjects and all, and they just said, oh, well, you won't be doing PE. There was no provision saying, well, well you can't, obviously, uh, you, you can't go on to this, the trampoline and you can't do this. It was just you don't do PE. So I didn't do PE in secondary school because they couldn't have thought of something which nowadays they would have to make some provision under the law. Uh, every child must have access to PE. But at that stage, it was just, no, well, you won't be doing PE, which I didn't mind at the time because I thought this is great. I can just mess about for a bit. But looking back on it, really, you should have, you should have had some sort of physical education. But now when you're talking about, having said that, I had plenty with swimming because you're talking about the, the when you talk about the infantile paralysis, that's what the, the infantile paralysis became the North Iron Polio Fellowship in 1962. And that's, and Jim and I would have swam in the normal baths every week, you know, right from then, you know, so, I mean, we had all that. And, and from that, we learned so, so much from the fellowship. Uh, and with regard to employment, uh, I, I had never any bother really with employment because uh, I was in clerical work. So it, it wasn't really an issue uh, uh, very much the only one time was near the end of my career uh i was put out of the building because there was some sort of a problem uh with the fire escape and they decided that i was too much of risk and I, I got a fortnight special leave while they sorted out the thing but other than that i have to say employment really wasn't a big issue for me um so jim what was your experience uh in school and in the workplace with polio kind of what Kind of provisions were put in place, if any at all? Yeah, it was actually, you know, I was a self-employed taxi driver for 
after I got my amputation, I went and became a taxi driver. And then in 93, I took um, diabetes and lost my, lost my taxi license. I then became a, went back to university and I became an IT tutor. I've done that for the last 20 odd years. There's a, I don't need anything sort of special done for me as long as I've got a good comfortable chair. I'm happy. That's brilliant that you went back to university and stuff. Look, well done. Um, so, Jim, I'll just ask you now as well too. So, um, was has there been any challenges in your life that you felt due to polio and kind of the aftermath of it that you couldn't really do or you felt you weren't able to do? Um, I mean, it's, it's really the real physical things I couldn't do. Obviously, I was never going to become a footballer or anything like that. But um, anything really physical, I, I couldn't do. I mean, I had a very full social life, very full married life. Um, no, there hasn't been anything I haven't been able to do to set my mind up, basically, you know. No, that's amazing, Jim. Really, really amazing. Um, Eddie, um, I'll ask yourself as well, too. Have you found any kind of challenges in your life that maybe polio's kind of somewhat held you back? Like Jim, I've had a very full life with uh, children and grandchildren and uh, always in employment and things like that. Uh, and obviously, uh, not being able to play football and one thing or another held you back, but I mean, you just live with it. But I have to say, the group that we were in, the Northern Ireland Polio Fellowship, that the head of it was, was Mr. Rankin, and his attitude was that we had to get on with life. <laughs> and it really taught, I mean, because we had all polio, so you didn't get sympathy at all. Uh, when we went to Polio House, the up the stairs was where things happened. And whether you were in crutches or calipers or whatever, you had to get yourself up the stairs. And we learned to do that. I mean, by all fair meals are foul and so i have to say you know we were always taught not to lie down and think oh we've got polio people have to do things for us we, we just got on and did it now there are obviously things we couldn't do like football and and I, which i would love to have played because i, I can remember playing it out in the street when it was but the, other than that really we managed to do most things foolishly sometimes uh, by the way you know i can remember like painting and falling off the ladder. But I mean, I still did the painting. I mean, but, you know, things like that happen. And you just laugh at it and say, you know, that's life. No, that's a really good attitude to take and like fair play to um, So I'm wondering, uh, Jim, I'll go back to yourself. Did you receive any counselling or medical support, you know, from like doctors and stuff following your diagnosis? Well, I can always sort of remember attending the children's hospital quite frequently. And that sort of the calipers, they were trying to build up shoes and you know, so you, you had you had a lot of contact with the medical profession. Um but they were giving you built up shoes and to me they were the worst thing ever like. They absolutely were I mean they just made everything so much harder to do, although without them your spine was twisting. So I sometimes wore them and sometimes didn't. But in general, the, the medical profession were, were quite good, like, you know. No, I'm glad to hear that you had, like, a fairly good experience. Um, uh, Eddie, how about yourself? Did you receive any counselling or, like, what other medical support did you get kind of following your diagnosis other than the things you've kind of already said? 
No, not, not any counselling other than, and as I say, like Jim, I was in the system and then the problem was when you went out of it, like when after I was about nine, they decided nothing more could be done. So then when I sort of had my curvature at 12 or 13, you had to get yourself back into the system. Then I was in it until I was well into my 20s because one thing after another happened, so I didn't leave it. But then again, I had a gap from 25 to 40 and I didn't see anybody and had to get back into the system again. And I, since that, I'm reviewed sort of every year to 18 months uh, for advice. And I mean, and I've, and I've got different advice from the neurology department and physiotherapy department about things to do to try and make life a bit easier for myself. But, uh, you know, I'm at the minute quite satisfied with how the medical profession, you know, uh, is going with, with regards to the polio. That's quite encouraging that they're keeping in touch with you to make sure that you're doing well and you're happy. Um, so what are your views, um, Eddie, on the eradication of polio now? Well, it is absolutely essential. I mean, the, 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 the one, there's the one last push organization which is funded through the Gates Foundation uh, uh, and Rotary International to try and eradicate polio from the world. And it's down now to about three countries. And uh, it's absolutely essential. And the same thing about when you see COVID, I mean, I hear people saying, you know, I don't want to take the COVID vaccine. You know, I just look and thought, look at me, I have this because there was no vaccine. And I would never take that risk. The day that the COVID vaccine was released to the over 65s, I had my name down to get it. And, uh, you know, so I absolutely, completely and utterly support the eradication of polio uh, program for the world and generally uh, vaccine programs. Now, Jim could tell you more about it because Jim represented the Northern Ireland Polio Fellowship in Pakistan just uh, the year before last, Jim. Jim, so if you just want to tell me your experience and kind of on the eradication of polio and then... Uh, vaccine in general, that would be brilliant. Well, um, as Annie was saying there, I was invited out to Pakistan to witness the, the vaccinations as they were being done in Pakistan to have 45 million under five-year-olds who had to be ex uh, uh, vaccinated 10 times a year. They, they went out to their houses. But it's a bit, it's a bit of an uphill struggle for them, simply because of the infrastructure over there. I mean, you're over there, there's human waste running down the streets and that's 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 the reservoir over there. And they call it the biggest polio reservoir just because the human waste goes into that there. And that's where a lot of the, the virus stays live. And I mean, the kids drop a ball on the street, they lift it up with their hands and some stays their hands touch their mouths and that's how the virus would just enter their bodies. Um, but they're doing it, they are doing a brilliant job over there with it. And but it was a big eye opener for them to actually go there and see the work. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your experience over um seeing all those things. Like it's just it's really sad that it's still here today. Um that's all my questions. Can I finish up? So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website, www.epidemic-belfast.com.